2: <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our second Motorsport Magazine podcast of 2015. And we've got some entertainment for you today, I can tell you, because for the next hour, we have Mark Blundell, a man who must have driven more cars than almost any other racing driver. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary how many cars. This guy is this guy is raced or tested, amazing. Anyway, um, thank you for joining us uh, at Motorsport Magazine, uh, overlooking the Thames in London. Lovely winter morning, and uh, Mark, thanks for making the track over here.
1: Uh, it's my privilege. I'm. Uh Enjoying every minute of it so far, apart from the stairs on the way up. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, yes. Unfortunately, the, the lift has broken in this building. So, uh, us, uh, good grief. It? <laughs> so, uh, so, yes. Along with the ceiling. Somebody, somebody, somebody's now about to come through the ceiling. Anyway, we can cope. Um, you were a motocross rider to start with. Um, have you done any since you stopped doing it, if you see what I mean? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I, motocross actually was... I lived in a rural area, so motocross was really the uh, the core sport on wheels yep. in sort of farming community as such. Yep. Uh, instead of going into go karts, which most race drivers normally do, um, so that was what I did as schoolboy level. Uh, top 36 ACU rider at schoolboy level, so reasonably successful. Had an opportunity to go on to be a professional guy, but didn't really like the. Uh, the to you know it was a little bit too the messy mud. yeah a little bit too messy at the weekends oh, right, yeah, okay. it wasn't wasn't that enthralled about cleaning my bike on a friday <laughs> and a monday which actually with the bonus was I never went to school on a monday or a friday but <laughs> um yeah it it transpired that you know motocross was a great a great platform for me because uh, and, and maybe simon might uh, understand this a little bit more but when we did wet races and i always loved to race in the wet I would pick lines out that were a little bit obscure yeah. and that came from motocross yeah. because uh, you wouldn't go into a, a berm or a, a rut that was there at times because it was too deep. You'd right angle the corner and try and find the maximum grip yeah. and apply it in car racing and, and that was kind of what you know, put me on that track early on. And I, mean I was
3: going to say, must have, <coughs> must have helped a little bit as well with I mean, just balance, hand, you know, hand to eye and all of that stuff. I mean an awful lot of that must have translated from your motocross
1: days. 100%. Uh, you know, most people I talk to when you, when you speak to them about driving a car they don't understand that actually balance is a key point mm. uh, we all get back in our road cars when we go home you know if you're actually sitting a little bit skew-whiff in your seat and you'd actually feel comfortable one you're not confident and two you won't operate the car that effectively mm. so you know balance is is quite key and at the same time, I think, you know, that hand-eye coordination, that, that competitiveness as well. I had no issue with lining up of a grid of race cars. I was used to lining up with 38 other kids next to me, handlebar to handlebar, you know, clutch and brake levers entwined already before we got to turn one. And um, so that, you know, there was no worries about going wheel to wheel. Um, so I think it was a great stepping stone, even though, you know, we had to add another couple of wheels, and uh, two to four wheels, but the transition was, was quite smooth.
2: Did you start car racing because you thought it was less muddy or
1: a bit safer or what? No, I mean, you know, the background of all of this is my, my dad is a panel beater by trade. Right. That's his profession. Um, he was a self-made... Came made useful I should think. Yeah, very, very useful in many, many areas and there's a lot of stories attached to that as well. <laughs> Even down to American motorhomes being repaired on the side of the road in the States. But it's another story, but... Um <coughs> the, uh, the background is that he was a panel beater and sprayer, that was a profession. He then elevated himself into being what we call a, a car dealer uh, and uh, did very well and, you know, and very independent. So as a young kid, I started driving at 8 years old, you know, I sat on a cushion, I went around the, the, the yard of cars, uh, at 14 years old I was, you know, stealing keys out of the key box in the garage and taking cars off the forecourt, um, I only told him about that 10 years ago, yeah, he was yet to find that one out, um, some heavy metal as well, you know, if something would have ever happened I'd have been in big trouble. Um, not that proud of it now but it's one of those things you do as a kid. And yeah, none of the family had anything to do with car racing, uh, you know, categorically. Um, my dad's dad was a Coleman, he comes from Islington, my mum comes from Watford. Um, dad couldn't read and right, left school at 13. So that's the background of us, uh, which probably makes some sense why I don't have any education either, because I didn't see the sense in it. Um,
2: doesn't seem to have done you much harm. Well, it? I, I
1: think, it, you know, I look back now and I, and I wished I'd have actually stuck to some things at school because uh, it would have stood, it stood me in good stead. But, you know, if I'd have learnt the language, I think that would have been a benefit to me in F1. If, uh, if I'd have actually learnt a little bit about adding up, would have been a benefit in my contracts. But there you go. <laughs> Am I right in
2: thinking that one of the first cars um, that you jumped into, having put the cushion on the seat, you actually wrote off, having hit another couple of cars along the way as well?
1: That's a true story, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the back of the garage, uh, the yard had been freshly tarmacked, uh, I jumped in a, back in the day as CVH 8 Jensen, oh you dear. remember those? <laughs> yeah, uh, quite a powerful car in its day, you know, and uh, got in that, went to drive out the yard, uh, had some fresh tarmac bitumen on the bottom of my shoes, slipped off the uh, brake pedal while I was just, you know, maneuvering a little bit, hit the throttle pedal, uh, got kind of rammed and stuck with it and launched myself into a, an old princess, Yeah, also a big car. Um, so I wrote the CV8 off, uh, damaged the princess, also hit a big block of concrete. And um, those times yeah, there used to be a, a field next to us and it was very tall paddock grass. And uh, I can remember to this day running through the field Uh, trying to escape from uh, the raft of my dad and trying to uh, actually just go as far as I could before anybody caught me. Luckily he caught up with me. Um, And to to give me due, uh, the words to this day I still think about is, you know, don't worry about it. We can put cars back together, but we can't put people back together. So I'm angry, but I'm happy that you're okay. And you've learned a massive lesson. Um, several lessons.
2: What a great dad.
1: Uh, he's a good guy, you know, and, uh, and to me, that's, that's all important, and that's something that, you know, even the guys that I look after today, you know, one, I make sure they're all insured, uh, and two, just to make sure that, you know, listen, machinery is mm. machinery. You know, whatever it costs, it is what it is, but life is, yeah. there's, you can't put a cost to it.
2: We should, we should explain before we go any further that you do manage uh, racing drivers and you, you manage footballers as well, don't you?
1: Oh we manage 22 football players, wow. 8 racing drivers, wow. uh, 8 golfers and then we represent some other people as well so yeah it's only a, it's only a little boutique business with a few people involved but it um, keeps me out of trouble. What are uh, racing drivers like compared to footballers and golfers? You want the true answer?
0: <laughs> <You> <laughs> yes <go on>. of course, <laughs> Yes. there's no one listening don't worry it's yeah, fine. No,
1: I I I think you you have to understand and it's it's interesting it's interesting to come out of a sports background and then go into other sports you know football is very much peer pressure locker room mentality trying to actually get a young football player to understand that listen you know you don't have to go with the flock all the time you need to just focus on what you do best cut your own path I know you're going to get a bit of heat sometimes but you'll see that there will be rewards at the end of it but unfortunately there's this sort of process that you know the, that goes on and it's difficult to break the mold and then when you see what goes on in premier league today and you see uh guys you know on the sort of salaries and what they're up mm. to it's very difficult to actually get them to understand that there is another channel you know i, I think you know for, for what it is um david beckham for me i think he's a great role model i think he's a he's a fantastic advert for our our country i think he's a great advert for football yeah. okay He's no different to me in many ways. Um, I don't have the biggest vocabulary in the world, and uh, I'm not that eloquent, but I try and relate in the way that I see. And nine times out of 10, most black cabs I get into, they all relate to me, so I'm happy with that. I get to go, <laughs> get to go where I want to go. Um, you know, it might not fit everyone, but he, I think he's a great brand and he's worked hard at it. Uh, and I think that's the kind of guy that a young football player should be looking at. Racing drivers, golfers, very much in tune. It'd be, very nice, similar.
2: it'd be nice, wouldn't it, Mark, if, if somebody like Jensen would become a similar figure to Beckham in the world of motor racing, which I, I think Jensen's well capable of doing.
1: I if think you Jensen, he, you know, I, I take my hat off to him in the last sort of six months. I think he's done a tremendous yeah. job in handling this whole thing what went on with McLaren and uh, is he, isn't he. Yeah. Um, he did it with class, and I think uh, he, he got a lot, of, uh, a lot of brownie points for that. And yeah, after sport, in whatever capacity it may be, I think there's a, there's a great sporting brand ambassador for the country because he, he can cope with that level.
2: Getting back to Mark Blundell, um, uh, our man Simon Aaron was present the day you first got into a racing car. Is this right, Simon? It, the,
3: <clears throat> the day he first raced. Oh, did, uh, the, day, okay. the day he first actually competed, okay. yeah.
2: Tell me about it. Tell well, about I
3: mean, I mean, I, I mean it, this, this is going back to the old classic triangular Silverstone club circuit, which to my mind, for all they've changed Silverstone, the one thing they've done wrong was replacing the triangular club circuit because it provided great racing. And I was in the Dunlop Tower looking down on the old Woodcut. We you could see cars pretty much from the exit of Beckett's all the way down the straight. And you were in your Black Lola, never heard of you previously. You're doing a Formula Libra race, I think. I think Eugene O'Brien was making his Formula Ford debut the same day. And um, your, your angle, I mean, your, we were talking about balance before, but the lines you were taking through Woodcut was sensational because you were flicking the thing sideways half an hour before the corner and holding it sideways all the way through to pretty much cops, it was brilliant to watch. Certainly. Yeah,
1: I didn't actually know what I was doing.
3: Oh, they did Well, it looked, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it looked, you didn't go off, you didn't go off then. I mean, it looked yeah. wild, but it no. looked reasonably
1: effective. Yeah, no, uh, And again, being, just being honest, it was that mindset of this is a corner, regardless of what the racing line is, it means nothing to me at this stage because I haven't learnt any, uh, any trade because it, it really was the first race we ever did. And um, we were in you know, Formula 4 1600 up against some old even F1 cars well 5000 cars. cars it, was it was a Libra race, but yeah. it was all sorts it of stuff. Everything was in. Um, so, you know, and it was wet. Okay, approached a corner. I'm trying to find the driest piece of circuit and I can see a little bit of a reference where I can turn the car in. It means I've got to set it up a little bit further back here and then flick it in and drive it out. So be it. Uh, It was great fun, whether or not it was the quickest way, I don't know, but to me it felt natural because if I'd have been on a motocross bike, you know, I'd have had the rear end out and you know, (laughs) the front end would have been hooked in a berm and off we go. So it was just a natural process. Um, You know, in those races in the early days, I probably learned, you know, most of my skill sets as a racing driver in, in that very first sort of two years.
3: That the first season, you did about 70-odd races, didn't you, or something? You did a huge number.
1: Again, because of coming from motocross. Because we'd go to a motocross weekend, there'd be four races in one day. And for us, we were turning up at a Formula Ford event, and it was like, right, 10-lap race. All we need is a couple of extra gallons of fuel, maybe another set of tyres. do not have to be new, they can be worn. One entry fee at f- 35 quid, whatever it was back then. And let's go and compete. Okay, if we take a corner off and we haven't got the spares, tough. But you know, uh, let's go and get three races in on one day as opposed to doing one. <laughs> so it, it made sense. I mean, it, it was logical. Yes, there was a bit more budget, but pro rata, and yeah. it was small, and we learnt quickly. So yeah, we did. We did seventy odd races. I think we won twenty-five apparently. Yeah, I mean, and won more than any other guy. I think at that time. I'm again pro-rider because the amount we did but even so i think it, it gave us a huge amount of experience and miles mm. in a short space of time
3: i just just i'll i'll cap, cap the self-indulgent stuff after this one but you go back to 1985 you when you were running the national formula four championship i mean looking back at that the level that season there was you? There's Bertrand Gasho, Paolo Karkaski, who was very good and very underrated. Damon Hill, um, Pete Rogers, late Pete Rogers, in his laser, Herbert. Johnny Herbert in the Quest. I mean, there were there were nine or ten guys, all of very very similar ability, and you were usually kind of glued together at the front. I mean, the racing, the standard of the racing, the quality. Damon Hill. Yeah, Damon. Yeah, Eddie uh, Irvine.
1: Eddie Irvine. Yeah, yeah, Eddie, yeah.
3: yeah. <coughs> I mean, Perry McCarthy was just a little bit behind most of you most of the time. He, hate me for saying, but he was. Um, but I mean, the, the standard that he season. won't like that, you know? No, no he <laughs> I know he won't. You're, you're <laughs> going to get a phone call <laughs> soon. <sorry. laughs> yeah, I get phone calls anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the standard that season was just brilliant. I mean, it was aggressive and brutal sometimes. I remember one or two punch ups between you and Bertie Gasho, for instance. But oh, I mean, the. the, the off the track. the track. Off the track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off yeah. the track. But no, it's usually um, because of stuff that happened on the track.
1: Listen, I, I still say to this day the best motor racing I've ever done in my life. The most competitive the most fun uh and i truly believe yeah that was probably one of the best crop best group of drivers Mm. that have come through a transitional junior formula and all gone on to be successful in 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 our model and that model is to get to formula one because you know so many of us did make it and uh i think they all made it on merit as opposed to checkbook or whatever the case may be we all kind of slogged through and got there yeah. some of us then went on to do better than others but at the end of it all that little nucleus it was quite a talented group
2: it was just so exciting as simon says though the racing was just so thrilling wasn't it i mean you you really went you you know you were quite happy to go and stand on the bank all afternoon in the rain it was just brilliant stuff wasn't
1: yeah it? and i think also that um You know, uh, on my side of things, what really uh, stuck out was I I know for sure there was two or three events that I blew races just to prove a point. And the point was that I would go into any corner with anybody side by side and I wouldn't come out of it. So if we didn't make the corner, you know, if, if I never saw the exit, I made a point. Because I knew the next time I raced against a guy, he'd back out. Because psychology... And, uh, and if it didn't work off the track, I normally tried to make it you know, <laughs> <coughs> work in another way. So, it, um, <coughs> you know, so hence why I had points on my license from being, uh, well, actually I got arrested one day at Castle Coon.
3: <laughs> that was after you tried to poke Bertie through, the, through his helmet slot, wasn't it? Trying to poke him in the eye or something? Or punch I him did ask
1: him to take his crash helmet off and he refused so yeah, he he, made, punched a, him he anyway. made an error judgment because he flipped his visor up, so I managed to get a, sort of a semi fist into the visor <laughs> slot. <coughs>
3: <laughs> I, I think that might have been the day. I, I, I remember sitting outside race control until about midnight, waiting, <laughs> wait, <laughs> waiting for the results. Because you lot, I mean, about eight Formula Four drivers were in with the stewards. I think you and Bertie had been having your punch up, and it was yeah,
1: yeah, uh, and it was a classic one of Bertrand uh, not being able to talk any English when he got into the stewards' room. You know, and as soon as he come out, it's like. All <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: right, You um you you went pretty much straight to Formula 3000. How how did how did that occur? I mean talk about a jump. Well,
1: I've never done anything in the conventional fashion. Um and maybe that's because of a lack of understanding and a, la- a lack of reference and not really having anybody with any motorsport knowledge. So we always looked at things without seeing any of the actual barriers that were probably there Mm. because actually in our first year we ran our own team fleet ray racing was sort of born uh, and then we actually then got picked up by ralph firman at van diemen and and went on to race in the works team and we got three quarters of the way through and we thought actually this is not even doing what we needed to do so we put ourselves back in our own team again and then i picked up a deal with Reynard as a factory driver, so we had all factory support, but we ran it ourselves.
3: That was, that? that was in two those in two litre in <coughs> That was yeah. a two litre yeah. and
1: we won European championship and then I think second in British and again still having battles with Bertrand, stuff like that. Um, and and actually at that stage we kinda got mucked around a little bit. We got picked up by uh, an offer to deal with Yokohama uh, Tires to be a supported driver with a I think it was called an Anson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and that package was presented, and it was a fully funded uh, F3 deal. Um, Gary Anderson was involved in it, uh, and and I remember actually going to uh, going to the meeting with with my dad, and the uh, the big boss of the tyre company at the time. who was going to fund the whole project. He basically made made us wait like about 25 minutes. Uh, one thing I knew, even as a youngster, my dad doesn't wait for anyone. You know, he, he will wait, but if you say you're going to be 1 o'clock and you don't come out at 1 and say, sorry, I will be late, you just don't come out and 25 minutes later, pretty much guarantee we won't be there. And we weren't. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, that, was that, that was that situation. So this had taken us a bit into a different time scale. And um, we kind of thought, look, you can drive a race car. So it's four wheels, it's pedals, it's an engine. Let's mm. just jump. Who says you have to go and do F3? There's no sort of sure. regulation. So we went and bought an old F3000, a year old car, mechanical injection, <coughs> plugged up a little bit on the chassis and stuff. Um, we called it the shed because it was kind of uh, bits and pieces on it. And we went with our own team and went F3000 racing. And, and let it spar in the rain. Letting us spar at the rain and would have won that one if only it had been, you know, the result not taken from the lap before when Siler yeah. had his accident. Um, and we overtook all the factory guys with the, you know, electronic injection and the mole responses. And we had to borrow some uh, some air guns.
3: Well, the thing I remember about that is when he when came through... Changing from wets to slicks. I think all the other teams had to come and help you change tires because you didn't have enough crew.
1: That was right. Yeah, yeah. and, and that, was, that was the beauty of it. There was a lot of uh, I mean, Roger Cowman and uh, Colin Bennett. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they all mucked in and lent us their air guns because all we had was a torque wrench. Fantastic. <laughs> so we came to the pit stop to you know change, and it's like you know they all rushed in like helped. It's like off we went, uh, and we had a we had a great time. So, that must um, have
2: been an incredible feeling actually leading that race and as a privateer. I mean. Yeah.
1: It was, I mean at the time I didn't think, all I was thinking about was you know, uh, one you couldn't see because it was spar and there was no vision so it was reference like when Moreno backed off, I kept going, you know, when Wallace backed off, I kept going, Modena backed off, I kept going. Fortunately I kept coming out the other end um, and that's the kind of way that we drove it. But it, it, it meant a great deal but not until after because then we kind of realized that we'd done something with an old package that people were kind of, hang on a minute, and you're on a shoestring budget you know, we d- we had some funding, but it wasn't big levels. Um, mm. And in fact, actually, I did do F3 because Tom's Toyota asked me to drive their car, and they paid me to drive. And the budget they paid, I used to the F3000 budget to extend another couple of races.
3: In the in the next issue of the magazine,
1: Simon's written a, <coughs> a great story about 3000 because this year's the 30th anniversary of it starting in '85. And you you've written a lot about the the, the camaraderie of the, the series, um, which. We just don't seem to get, these days, that sort of level where it, it was very, very competitive obviously and very hard, but there was a, a good element of fun and uh, team spirits sort of within the whole series. I think some of that stems from where F1 is, you know, mm. you see F1 as, a, as a, a, an environment now and even that is not as much fun as it used to be, no one's got time, mm. they haven't got time to even stand in a paddock and have a chat for five minutes, mm. you know, so... You've got all these uh, mirrored teams, you know, the junior team Lotus and the junior team this, and, and they all want to try and mimic F1, mm. and it's lost a bit of its, its. I don't say coziness, but there there, there isn't such a warm feeling anymore. Um, do you think that's
2: partly to do with the the money or not? I mean, wh- how does it compare with football in that sense? That there's more and more and more billions of pounds going into
1: football. Is that? It's it's different because you know what, what football's different in in that the money is basically the clubs, and you know that, that's that's the uh, the pool. But at the same time, you know some of that wealth gets distributed down to the players and they're on pretty big salaries. But you again you come back to that kind of locker room mentality. So there's there's there is that sort of uh, camaraderie still there to a certain point. Yeah. But when you get into single single sports people's Focus and they're up against each other. The the actual, you know, the, the getting together afterwards isn't quite the same. No. You know, and the getting together before isn't quite the same. No, right. Yeah. You know, um. You know, in saying that, back in those early days, the the little pack of us were all close, and we still meet every year today. You know, huh? last December we were all right. we all go out and talk about the same blinking stories. <laughs> as what we do every year. <laughs> you know, they all get enlarged and bigger and better, but it's um. It it was there but saying that it was dog eat dog so we were all also prepared to take each other out Um, and and that's the way it was but it was a sort of respectful feeling now i think there's a little bit of Mm. there's a bit of an edge to it Mm. because if you haven't quite got that association or if you haven't quite got the budget or you haven't quite got the right operating team they already feel that they're one step above and Mm. in doing that i think they lose a little bit of that crossover
2: in nineteen eighty nine you you did some testing for Williams. you've come a long way, haven't you? It's quite a short time actually
1: Well, you consider i started in eighty <laughs> four doing a Formula Ford and by eighty nine I was sitting in the Formula one car testing um i mean even by today's standards still quite quick <laughs> and back then it was incredibly quick yeah. uh, i had some uh, I had some support from John McDonald, who was uh you know former team owner and Man about town in F1. Um, John wheeled me into uh, to Frank and sat there. And basically uh, I sat like a very good <laughs> little boy. While John told him that I was the best thing since sliced bread and he would be stupid not to put me in a car to test me. Um, thankfully, Frank took note and put me in a car and we went and did some little testing early on and they were very pleased with the feedback and very pleased with what was going on. And they offered me a three-year testing contract, um, you know. And to be at that stage, very young, having a three-year contract with Williams Grand Prix was was a massive thing. Uh, and also, I was getting paid, you know. Which is, when I look back, you know, I was getting paid at Formula Four 2000. I'm quite lucky that I've always been able to sort of cut a deal to try and get some salary, uh, which is fortunate because I'd be no good at anything else. <laughs> so, but. Um, you know 89 was a pivotal year because from kind of coming through those winters where there was not much on the horizon we had a f1 test deal world sports car deal and an f3000 deal so i did all those disciplines in one season but williams was a fantastic proving ground for me because i had a great rapport with with patrick um you know good rapport with frank i was the the youngster but in many ways, I was the first generation of professional test driver. You know, that that, that was the, the the template for it. And of course, we we know who kind of took my uh, my role, um, which, you know, f- to this day is still one that I think about. I can't regret it because I did it, but, um, you know, things tell me that if I'd have stayed where I was, I probably would have been in a different situation, but that's the way the cookie crumbles.
2: Sure, it's difficult. Uh, what, uh, just tell us a bit about, I mean, how how did you come to get that wrong, if I could put it that way?
1: I think because we'd we'd done what we'd done in the, the old F three thousand car, um, and it really did sort of shake up the paddock a little bit because you know, if you're talking about an Onyx with, you know, a seven hundred thousand pound budget back then from Marlborough and these star guys and the, you know, the, the European guys, and along comes this little Pan outfit with an old truck and an old car and an old mechanical and in injected engine, and blitz by them. Hang on a minute, what's going on? It doesn't. It's not conforming. So a bit like Cambridge drawing with Man <coughs> United. Exactly that. Exactly that. And you know maybe at some stage it was only going to be a, a blip on the uh, on the radar, but it showed that there was some some potential. Mm. Uh, uh, and I think they were, you know, Williams were gracious enough to give me the opportunity. And once I got in and you know got behind the wheel of an F1 car I, I took it and grabbed it with both hands um, you know I think I probably have a good bet with somebody I think I'm probably I probably have the most miles of any driver in the world and active ride suspension Formula One cars yes. mm. because I did all of Williams's work yeah. uh, later when it did McLaren stuff and also semi-automatic gearboxes so again youngster yeah. Learning a huge amount of cutting-edge technology stuff with the best in the business.
2: It, it must be quite a shock going from what you call the shed to the Williams Grand Prix car. I mean, you couldn't probably find two more different single seaters.
1: Yes. Massive differential. I mean, you know, j- just to just to have somebody actually like greet you at the door and say like, <laughs> <that>, you know, <laughs> like treat you as a professional. I mean, all of a sudden the, the dynamics change. But in saying that, the dynamics change in such a way where I always. Wanted to, you know, uh, not try and change myself and still be the guy that I was because, ultimately, I think that was some of the draw. You know, they, uh I don't know, maybe in some ways I think they may have trying to get the next Alan Jones or something, like you know, the, the kid out of the outback, who'd done good kind of thing, and bring him across. And you know, I, I always went in. It cost nothing to say hello, and it cost nothing to say good night, even if you'd had a bad day, and I think that went a long way. And uh, wherever I've been, I've tried to sort of take that with me, and I think Williams actually gave me a good grounding for that, because I knew whatever was going on, even in a test role, if something needed doing, and it maybe affected me directly, the guys would actually knuckle down and put an extra mm. hour in to do it, mm. because you know we were a tight little nucleus, and um, they were really good days actually, you know, and. Paddy Lowe was one of my main guys. You'll see where Paddy is today. <laughs> um, you know, he, he sent me a photograph very recently about uh, you know, a test we did at Pembry with the Williams, and Patrick had turned up for the test with the active car, and I'd whipped around and done an outlap, pulled it straight back in, and threw my hands up in the air and complained over the radio, really giving it some. And Patrick got his head straight in, like, what's wrong, you know, thumping. And uh, I said, hey, there's a leak, we've got a leak. And uh, he's like, well, what's gone wrong? One of the actuators leaking, This shouldn't be happening. So, and I pulled out this Welsh leak from... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, uh,
1: so <laughs> he went apoplectic. Uh, the guys all fell about laughing. And that was a kind of, you know, we had fun you know we got down to work but we had he a lot do, of fun
2: he does tell that story now though i think he's he's he's, he's got over it yeah. um can we just uh, can we just take let's take a couple of questions from our listeners because um uh, they've taken all the trouble to send them in um rob asher wants to know uh, mark about your win at portland in 1997 we're going to jump around a bit here so yep. yeah um you won by what was it? I mean, less than a second, but something. I don't know. A no fag paper was it? 0.027 pounds
1: of yeah, a second.
2: Yeah, he's got it right. Okay, well yeah. done, Rob Asher. Yeah.
1: Um, did you did you know you'd won? No. Um, <clears throat> again, one of those races of a wet race, dry conditions, um, and then again one of those one of those times for me in a race car which I used to love and uh, whenever there was wet conditions and it started to dry out I was in my element because it was pushing the boundary every lap and trying to find that little extra bit of dry line and that's what won us the race at Portland um, and we came off the last corner of the last lap literally got a bit better traction and out dragged uh, you know the, the guy in front of. yeah it was Gilles and I think actually uh, he's now a DJ he's a Brazilian guy he's uh, a Brazilian guy his professional dj i think he does better in dj andre andre, andre ribeiro no not ribeiro um
2: let's think 97
1: uh, good looking guy always affected me <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> raul bazel oh
2: raul oh, bazel. Ridicat- <coughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah so uh, there's, uh, there's actually a great picture <laughs> that's been painted by somebody and it shows Punch punching the air winning the race and me closely behind that uh, all of about, I don't know, two centimetres or something. Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't behind, I was in front, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. so I, I won. And then Raoul was, uh, was further behind. The chances are possibly, but it wouldn't have been by my doing because I'd kind of made sure Raoul could have possibly even out dragged a pair of us because uh, he was actually making some ground as well. But um, I would have fought on the uh, next corner about that one.
2: A but win's yeah. a win.
1: A win's a win and it was a, it was a fantastic win. It was great, uh, great spectacle and it was fantastic to be uh, part and parcel of that one. But yeah, I didn't really know until the, uh, firstly I saw the leaderboard in the middle of the circuit and saw our number on top. And then secondly, the guys on the radio came over and uh, it was a little bit of a delayed reaction actually, because I think they were all celebrating themselves. But <laughs> <laughs> came over and said, "Like you've you've won," and um, you know it was a great great feeling.
2: Yeah. Um, Gareth Holt um, says asks you what was more rewarding to drive the, the late '90s Champ cars around, say, Road America, or the mid '90s F1 car around Spa? So that's a pretty tough question. <clears throat>
1: It's it's not tough in as much as the most rewarding racing cars to drive are a Formula One car, because they're the purest. Mm. So for every input, there's an output, and I think any driver you speak to, when they drive an F1 car, it's you know it's the pinnacle. Mm. So from that perspective, F1. But if you asked me what was the best car to race, I would have probably said an Indy car back in that generation. Mm. Um, you know, outside of my Formula Four days. For me, IndyCar racing in that era was Formula Ford at 200 miles an hour, you know, and <laughs> nine hu- 900 horsepower, no traction control. It was proper yeah. racing. And, you know, wheel-to-wheel, whether it be on a road course, street course, or an oval, it was serious stuff. Um, and I and I would say, you know, they were probably some of the uh, the best high-performance racing days that, that I ever did.
2: Great spectacle as well.
1: Again, I, I still feel some of the best racing you'll ever see. Definitely, definitely. And... Uh, you know, f- m- enjoyable because I was lucky enough to win on all the dis- different different disciplines. I didn't win a short oval, but I won on a super speedway, road course, street course, and you know, getting an oval right and actually coming through at the end of it after 500 miles is is quite a rewarding feeling. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, uh, a lot of guys actually diss it and dumb it down, but don't dumb it down till you tried it.
3: No. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean a, lot of, a lot of drivers take time to acclimatise from racing on. Street courses, conventional circuits, to ovals. I mean, how how long did it take you, and how how easy did you find it?
1: It took me a while. Uh, I tell you why it took me a little bit longer is because I'd sort of gone to Brazil and had a massive accident, and then the first time I'd gotten to a super speedway was on my recovery uh, laps from that accident. So, you know, when you when you roll out after nigh on killing yourself, and uh, and you go onto a two mile super speedway at Michigan and you get up to 180, 190 and then you, 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 you're thinking like this is not right, the car is just undrivable because it's not efficient at that speed, you know, it doesn't function properly mm-hmm. so you, you pull it in and firstly you're saying do I really need to do this because I've just come back from some big injuries and I don't feel g- too good about this whole thing and secondly I'm screaming to the engineer like give me something to drive, you know he's like well, what are you talking about, He's like you're not even going quick you know get over 210, 215 and the, ca- the car has settle down and i'm like okay this is serious now i need to i actually got out the car i left the circuit in the rental car i went off for an hour made my decision okay this is what i really want to do came back got back in it never thought again about it Mm -hmm. and that was off that was
0: hey everyone i've been on the go recently phoenix kansas city chicago if you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home you have an airbnb so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just
2: $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Where I went. Wow.
2: But you, you loved the ovals, didn't you? I, just, I just seem to remember reading some that you, you did actually really enjoy them.
1: I like the 500 mile races, Ed, because for me you know the the races were never about the qualifying it was about getting the car right for that three hours and 15 minutes um it was about making sure you had something underneath you that was a usable car throughout the transitional periods you know when you have a full tank of fuel and then you've got to jack weight about and you've got stagger on tires there's more to think about there's a lot more you can start to manipulate with the car to get performance you know and when you're when you're getting a toe off of turn four coming into one and you might get 15 to 18 mile an hour (laughs) slingshot you know and it's it's like being in a small aircraft if you, I can't really explain other than that if you've ever been in like a little Cessna and you go through turbulence and you you know that's wow. what it's like in an IndyCar when you're three or four because you've lost all of that clean air you're getting shook around pretty much and also you've got an area of control which actually is completely inefficient because the steering is is a void because it's basically on air there's a, there's a layer of it, and until you can just creep out of that and get mm. some grip back. It's the way you see a lot of guys kept to the exit of the corner and they hook and they're off. Mm. They're already on a blanket of air. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it's not because they got it wrong, it's just there's no air for to be efficient. So it's a, it's a strange feeling, the one that you have to really get some experience. You know, Don't get me wrong, I went on an over, and I got told off straight away by some of the big boys. I came down the pit lane and said, hey, what, what are you doing? I said, what do you think I'm doing? And I'm driving a car. He says, no, 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 this is not F1 don't come by me and like chop me off and go into the corner he said well that's what i do all the time he says yeah yeah that's great he said but you're gonna stick me in the wall don't worry about yourself worry about me because you're taking all my my air mm. and you just took my front end off me and i've washed out and i'm nearly up in the gray and i'm off you know it's like michael andretti unza jr i'm like yeah screw you okay so they do it to you then it's like okay i've got you <laughs> <coughs> Yeah." But you, you have to learn all of this, you know, and, and it's, it's something that it's you have to be respectful of, and, and it's when you get that level of respect, you can then run three, four laps in a super speedway an inch and a half away from a guy at 225, because that's the level of confidence and respect you have.
2: It's fascinating, it's fascinating. I mean, is there, is there an
1: element of fear
2: involved, Mark? I mean, I mean this is, you know, you're going very, very quickly in a car, aren't you, there?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know that's the quickest I've ever been in a racing car. Yeah. You know, outside of Le Mans, that, that hand grenade we drove at, uh, with Nissan, mm. you know, IndyCar on a super speedway, those days we were doing 248 on the straight and 227 in the corner. You know, 29.8 seconds for two miles, average. 25 other guys around you, you know, it's a busy environment. And I think you, you have to take on board that when things do go wrong, they're gonna go wrong in a big way you yeah, know there's no coming back from mm-hmm. that and there's an element of fear but that's the element that drives you yeah. i think if you you know i'm reading all the stuff today about a thousand horsepower and uh, i think all the guys would be up for that because they want something to actually challenge them yeah. you know i i want to drive a car that i've got to get in control of yeah. you know it's me machine circuit yeah. let me apply my skill sets to actually do the job yeah. and if it bites me back i've got to tame it uh, you know that's that's my skill that's what I do mm. so give me something don't give me something that does it all for me you know I'll do that in my road car every day is boring you know that, that's not a racing driver that's that's just a you know it's a plug-and-play
2: it's also it's also not just you either it's it's us watching uh, we you know the people who pay to come through the gate they want a spectacle that's going to give them some kind of thrill up the spine as well
1: yeah definitely um, you know that starts with the noise of the cars <laughs> Who wants to go to a pop concert and watch the singer whisper? You know, uh, you, you got to give the, uh, something to get all the stimulants going, and yeah. uh, you know if that means I see something revving at 19,000 revs, screaming and giving me some fantastic sound, and at the same time it's going sideways because the guys lost control of it. Fantastic! That, that's what I want to watch. Yeah. 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 And if he's side by side with another guy and they get sideways together and one gets it wrong and they clip each other and they're off, brilliant. Racing. Yeah? I mean yeah that's that's the bottom line and that's where I think it's gone slightly out of kilter and that's where I think you know everyone says oh the US, the US has got some great racing you know they might fabricate now and again with what they do to pack it all up but they give a show Mm. and you know Premier League football successful because if you watch a 90 minute match I watched one you know two nights ago it was a I didn't support the teams but it was a brilliant 90 minutes of entertainment Mm. It is. That's what I want to watch. It is, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Um, Simon Aaron was talking earlier on about the... the, the uh, uh, I'm not sure if he said the Brit Pack or the Brat Pack, but anyway, <coughs> both, both phrases
1: apply. Actually, it's the Rat Pack. The, the Rat Pack. <laughs> the rat okay, <laughs> the Rat Pack.
2: Okay, because I'm asking because um, Chris B, I don't know what B is, but Chris B uh, wants to know, who who didn't you enjoy racing against? Bertrand Gachot.
1: <laughs> <coughs> yeah... Uh, There's a number of drivers over the years that you don't enjoy racing with. um, And I tell you, the the fact of the matter is, most of those guys that you don't have a great enjoyment with on circuit are because you're not confident of what they're up to. Mm. Because, you know, no matter, we just talk about fear and an element of that, there's also self preservation built into most drivers. They're Mm -hmm. not stupid. So if I'm rattling into a corner, you know, even though I'd be the first one to say that I'll go in the corner and I won't back out there's still a calculation attached to it. Even, you know, I drive every day and I drive with a get out of jail card in my pocket because I'm always understanding what the exit is. If something goes wrong, where am I gonna go? And I do that on a race circuit to the best of my ability. But when people drive and don't actually have that capacity and British GT was a very big thing for me. I went and did a bit of racing with a friend of mine just for some fun. And the reason why I stopped is because of the other guys on circuit. And not to disrespect that they couldn't drive, it was the capacity that was available to understand what else was going on around them. Mm. And at that stage, I was thinking, this is going to affect me in such a way where I don't really need to do it. (laughs) I'm used to driving with guys who understand where we all are. Mm. And if I do this, they know they've got to do that. If they do that, I know I've got to do this. Mm. But when there's a level of experience that doesn't actually add up to that, the danger level goes up.
2: Are we naming names apart from Mr. Gasho or not?
1: <coughs> I'm not really going to be, uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Put it this way, all the guys that I didn't get on with know it.
2: Fine, yes, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. they do. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Okay, um, let, uh, let's jump to Le Mans because Neil Briscoe says, how many times, Mark, were you on opposite lock on that Le Mans pole lap in that Nissan? More, was more it more the hairiest car you've ever driven? It was
1: the hairiest lap I've ever driven. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, and I think the story's been told quite a lot of times now, but you know, purely because the shortened story is we never ran that car for one clean lap up until the lap that I got on the throttle coming out the last corner on a set of hard race tires because we didn't put anything else on. We never knew what the car would do, whether the tires would last. And I gave it everything coming off that last corner, opposite lock, straight away, s- spinning the wheels in fourth gear up the straight before I got to the Dunlop. And at that stage, it's like, right, you just got to hang on. Um, and a Dunlop chicane. I think I was crossed up throughout that, and Tert Rouge crossed up. You know, two thirty-eight miles an hour for the first chicane. Got there, no reference to braking. So everything was just reactive <coughs> references, trying to understand what I felt was underneath me, but not knowing. And to this day, I still say if we had a proper set of tyres and I had some experience, I think there's another four seconds in it. You know, round mm. Le Mans. I think there really is, wow. um, because. You know The level of grip that we threw away with a set of race tyres, the hardest tyres we had, just to actually do the ultimate qualifying lap and know what was underneath you, There's, there was a bag for the time there.
2: Can you give us a feeling of what that power felt like? Um, was it almost sort of out of control in
1: some way? It was in, because it, del- it was out of control in the fact that the delivery of it was so abrupt. It really was the switch. It was like you're either on or you're off. And then when it kicked in, the only way it kicked in was going sideways. So that was a counteract, even changing gear. You know, every change counteract, counteract. You know, that it was only a five-speed box, and you know, in four gears it was spinning rear wheels. So it w- it was it was like that. But it wasn't. It was not that lap where any of that came into consideration. Um, you know, all that came into consideration was let's just get this thing to the the, the line. Um, Knowing actually that was probably going to be in a whole bunch of trouble when I got back anyway because I'd taken the radio out and disregarded any you know uh, they told me to pull it in because it was over boosting again that was a big problem with it and had already radioed at the beginning of the lap to say like bring it in I'm just like I've been here a week already I'm not I'm not coming in so um, you know and and that was uh, that was the uh, the crux of it but the ironic thing for that was myself Julian Bailey were (laughs) teammates we knew we had a qualifying car been bantering all week about who was going to do the quali runs so he said look we we'll decide it on the flip of a coin you know hedge you quali and if i win then you take the choice and start the race so one of us would have the benefit of starting or, or going for a pole lap so i won the toss and said no i want the quality car i'm going to go for it um anyway we got on pole julian started the race and Murray Walker kept saying, and Mark Blundell <laughs> leads the race. So he never got any recognition whatsoever. So <laughs> it, it could have been worse. He could have mm. said Martin Brunzel. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I've used his name in vain a few times.
3: <laughs> but that, that did turn into the Le Mans 24 minutes more or less though, didn't it?
1: It did, yeah. Um, because at that stage, we were the first team to use carbon fibre brakes for Le Mans. Uh, they weren't very effective. So they ran into the back of a Jaguar. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was early stages that were very disheartening in many ways because we felt we had something underneath us to get a result. But, you know, that, that's Le Mans, Simon, as you know. It's, it's uh, one of those, those events that every driver who does it, I think, cherishes, especially if you get to a point where you can win it because there's so much effort put in, mm. and not just by you, by your teammates, by your team, by the logistics, by, by everybody. It's a six-, seven-month program.
2: Is your Le Mans when you kind of, you're, if you stand, if, if, you, if you have a trophy cabinet in your, in your house, which is the one that gives you the best buzz?
1: Well, firstly, I can tell you that there is no trophies in my house. so You sold them all? So no, no, I don't mean to be worth much. But um, if you walk in the door of my house, you would never know I've, I've been a racing driver. Oh. And that's conscious from... You need to understand that as a a kid, you know, at 21 years old, I was already a father. So I was a young dad trying to cut a career in international motorsports. There's a lot of responsibility. So I always came in knowing that like, I've done my day's work there. Now I've got to change a dirty nappy, you know, it's back to reality. And I never really had anything of a reminder around the house to sort of (laughs) get me out of tune with what the deal was all about. You know, and the deal for me was how am I going to make a career to make sure that I look after my son. Mm. That was what drove me to... <laughs> um, so even to this day, you wouldn't know, you know there's mm-hmm. uh, this, this stuff about my kids, but you wouldn't really say that there's anything that tells you that I was in racing for 25 plus years. Go to my office, my man cave, that's different. <laughs> yeah. Le Mans trophies is, is there. Uh, I think
2: I'd come out with less money. I'm not <laughs> going <gonna bother. laughs> to bother,
1: thanks. Yeah, but to answer your question, yep. Le Mans would be one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and the, the reason why I say that is also because the way in which it was done, because I was actually doing the testing role at McLaren for Senna and Berger. And I got the opportunity to go and do Le Mans with Jean Todd at Peugeot, with, uh, with Derek Warwick. And it was the only race I did that year, so of course you know, one out of one is is quite nice, and it's quite a nice one to do. But it was uh, it was a great program, and it um, and to this day, you know, it, it's it's got some relationships that are everlasting from that that victory.
2: Must have been quite interesting for you, Simon. Really, going going back to that day, the first you know the first time you saw him, and then to see Formula One winning Lamar and all of that. I mean, a lot of those guys really did brilliantly, didn't they? Yeah, well, absolutely. But I mean, I've been very privileged, and I've worked with a lot
3: of guys over the years, like Mark. I mean, yeah. like Damon Hill. I was at Damon Hill's first race when he was completely out of his depth sure. in Formula Four 2000 at the end of '83, and you know, he didn't look like he'd do another race, let alone go on to become a become world champion. I've been very, very lucky, and it's been it's been fascinating. It's been a fascinating journey.
2: Absolutely fascinating. But one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to ask that is because. There seems to be a lack now of, I mean, there are, there, I think I'm right in saying there aren't any Italians in Formula One, are there? No, no there aren't, right, good. Um, and you, you used to get, you know, a lot of French coming up, Brits coming you know, there there seemed to be this, almost like the football academy, OK, we're going to get these kids and one day they're going to play for Real Madrid. Seems to have just fallen away, doesn't it? I,
1: I think that's economics. uh, But
2: you didn't have economics, you didn't (coughs) have much
1: money. No, but I think also back then, as I say, there's a a crop of guys that were fortunate that one way or another they kind of cut a pathway and grabbed at every opportunity Mm. and and fortunately as well, you know, there were teams around that were going to take a punt and there were teams around that, you Mm. know, they may have said they had some money and in reality they didn't, you know, like I sat at brabham with bounce cheques on two occasions because they told me they had money and they didn't but you know, it didn't matter at the time. It was it was all part of the uh, part of the process. But you know, there was there was enough money around to to give a guy a go. Um, mm. And those days just seem to have gone. Mm. You know, it, it's not there anymore, and, and and that's some of the problem you see. now with, you know, F1 diminishing in terms of cars on the grid. Where do we get the next generation to come in? Because if they don't come exactly. in with twenty million dollars, they're not coming in at all. You know, I mean, it's
3: uh, sim- but it's simple maths in a Because I mean, back back when you made your decision to go to Brabham in 91. I mean, there were I don't know, 35, 36 car, F1 cars. I mean, there were, there were 30 plus. Um, and that was, uh, there was space to accommodate a few graduates from F3000 or F3 or whatever. Mm. Now you've got, we'll, we'll look as, as we stand, 18 Formula One cars. And then the pyramid below, we've got far more feeder series than we had before. Mm. You know, you've got full grids in GP2, GP3, FIA, F3 is oversubscribed, World Series by Renault. There are far more people at the kind of level where you would be ready to step into Formula One and there are far fewer seats to accommodate them.
1: And hence you're getting healthier grids in WEC with talented drivers. Absolutely, no, you're absolutely. Getting, yeah. You know, for me, if you look at a DTM grid, I think there's some immense talent on the DTM grid. Um, sure. and, and I think that's F1's loss, because I think there's some guys there that deserve to be in a Formula One car.
3: Well, one, I mean, one of your guys, Roberto merri yep. who was a FIA F, well, European F3 champ in 2011. Um, I mean he's, everything he's done points to a, a real natural gift and yet he's, right, there's nothing wrong with going off and earning a career in the DTM as he did for yeah. a year or two, but, you know, people like him, apart from a few laps in a Caterham, have done, have had a chance to do very little.
1: But then you look at those few laps he did in a Caterham, he didn't test it, he just jumped in it yeah, and, he, and he yeah, outperformed yeah. the guy who was a regular driver at it mm. and so that gives you an understanding of his ability Um, and you're right that's the kind of talent that sits there that's not being utilised and I I think that's a loss to us because I want to go and watch the best of the best
3: I mean the one that gets me at the moment is not part of your stable is uh, Robin Friends, the Dutch kid who who won Formula Renault Formula BMW won races in GP2 when he came in and not with big money either just you know talent and he's now blind alley nowhere to go
2: which are the eight drivers you're looking after just so we know so we can so our readers. Well,
1: the main guys who you the, m- the main guys yeah. who we look after um, Gary Paffitt. Right. And Gary have managed for 11 years now. Right. Uh, Mike Conway. Yep. Coming up to manage Mike for 10 years. And Tom Bloomquist, mm-hmm. who now is 3 years under under the wing. Uh, so for me stepping away from the cockpit of a race car I'm extremely proud now because I've managed those guys and they're all now in factory seats. So they've all got manufacturer deals. Hmm. And that is, you know, that's just right. They've done their job and I've been able to do my job. Yes, good. And it's sort of uh, a, a really rewarding feeling. So I now get more reward out of seeing those guys in those seats than what I did banging around in a British GT race or anything like that.
2: that's interesting cause, because there's a question here from, from Karen. And she says, do you enjoy the management side of things as much as you enjoyed your racing? Or is it just, or, or, well...
1: It's, it's different, obviously. Yeah. Uh,
2: competitive, though, still.
1: You see, I, I've always had something going on in the background because I always treated motorsport as being quite fickle. Hmm. So there was always some little commercial business that I wanted to have as a bit of security. Um, so when things didn't go according to plan for whatever the reasons were and the motorsport side started to dry up and then we went and got the opportunity to do TV for several years, you know, and that's, a, that's something I had to make a call on because if I didn't do it, somebody else would. It was, it was good why it lasted and it was another chapter in the book, so to speak, but, yep. you know, the, the management side is something obviously what started with myself and Martin Brundle, um, 2MB, very cheesy name, but it was effective at the time. And, you know, that was also based off of uh, the pair of us being at the BRDC because we were seeing money getting put into young kids and we were looking at it and saying, look, it's not really structured, it's not being looked after and it's not benefiting the kids in the way they uh, should get uh, some some benefit with this amount of money. So we said, right, let's start a management company. And uh, hmm. I'm now, you know, is no longer with me. I, I bought Martin out and we're yeah. still best of buds, but, um, you know, his focus is on the TV more yeah. than anything else. Yeah. And I've now gone on another step because I've now got some other guys with me uh, Theo Perfitis, my chairman, and investor. Is he really? Um, the Dragon's Den. Yeah, man. Dragon's Den, yeah. Fortunately, I didn't have to go through the interview <laughs> process. <laughs> <coughs> he left me with some underwear on, put it that way. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, another Ian Childs, who's chairman of uh, Red Letter Days, you know, the big experience yeah, 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 day company. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're with me in the business now. And, and it's a new chapter because, you know, I'm now learning about business in a different way and at a different level to what I've ever been before. Mm. and it's given me some bandwidth to go and start building something mm. that is rewarding, yeah, I do enjoy it. I like to go and negotiate with a team owner and you know, <laughs> this is this is my guy. I'm 100% I'm behind him. You know, you, you come to me and you tell me that he's got some negatives, well I'm gonna come to you and say well here's all the positives and this is how we're gonna fix the negatives right. and by the way you need to pay him X because you're gonna do your bloody good job. Yeah, yeah? and it might take some time to convince them but over time you know, Tom Blomqvist and BMW is not a deal that happened like that, that's no. a deal that was nurtured from June of last year, True. You know, the sure. head of BMW Motorsport is a, used to be my mechanic at McLaren on the engine programme, really? I've known Jens for a long time, nice. so it's a case of, hey Jens, can you keep an eye on Tom, I'm not saying that there's anything there yet, but just please watch the progress, and oh yeah, by the way, you can beat Verstappen, he can beat Ocon, he's that good, yeah? just give him a run once you run him i'm going to guarantee that you'll like what you see that's what i do now
2: does it slightly irritate you in any way that red bull appear to be supplying so many of the drivers who who, who make it i mean can you because you could never compete with that kind of cloud can no. you
1: no 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 way in the world compete with that no. but that's that's a different process that's uh you can't compete with Red Bull. No. Um, nor would I want to, right. because you know that that for me isn't management. Yeah. You know, management is about enhancing, nurturing, nurturing, yeah. guiding. Yeah. You know, Gary came to me and Martin at the time, in the early years, in a bit of a mess, and we, we've you know we we've we've stuck with him and we've helped him out, and yeah. I think if you spoke to Gary today. Gary would be the first to tell you that you know we, we got him out of a hole, and at the same time, we've helped him over those years to try and maximise and and give him the benefit of our experience and my mind now in the latter years and big years as it is now, but in trying to, you know, get him the best deal possible, and and it doesn't mean that that's always about helping him on track. There's sure. a lot of stuff we can help with off track. Sure, we've all lived it. I still think like a racing driver, but. I think like a racing driver for the benefit of all the guys I look after at the same time I think like a businessman because I'm also thinking for the benefit of them yeah. and yes along the journey I'm not doing it for nothing I admit <laughs> that sure. I'm doing it because I want to yeah it's rewarding
2: best reason for doing something isn't exactly. it um, exactly yeah. we're gonna have to stop which is a real shame because as I said at the beginning you've just driven so much so many cars i mean you cannot cover mark blundell's racing career in one hour you
1: cannot do it does that mean it's part two about, about i think there sh- should i think they should be if you go yeah
2: there should be yeah, for the for the same money <laughs> um which would be nothing then yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> thank you <laughs> um would you like to manage me no you wouldn't it's too late it's too late um can I w- just ask you one more thing before we go? And that, that was a bit, it's about testing with McLaren. I mean, Senna and Berger. Apart from, uh, I imagine there were a lot of laughs, <laughs> where Gerhard's concerned anyway. But um, what did you learn from all of that? And did you, in Senna's case, did was there something you know that you could obviously see where you thought, I may be quick, but...
1: <laughs> it's interesting, Uh you know, obviously I, g- I made a decision in 1991 to go run with Brabham, which mm. was probably, in hindsight, the worst decision I ever made mm. because I should have stayed with Williams mm. and I should have stuck. But I had nobody around me to tell me any different. Mm. Um, even worse was, you know, Williams were going to run me in the third Grand Prix uh, or the third British Grand Prix and such. We were going to have a Grand Prix at Donington, do you remember? Yeah. It yeah. was a muted that we were going to run a third car. Yeah, yeah? and it was going to... So I was already on online to do that. Everything was programmed, I was gonna be in that car. And it never happened, so a few things went against and then I made a bad call. Also made a bad call the day that I went out pit lane in Brabham because I understood very quickly that it was not gonna get me where I needed to be. I understood even more when I got invited back by Williams to test for them, which is unheard of and still doesn't happen to this day. Mm. Contracted one team and asked to go back mm. and do testing for them. When you go around 2.2 seconds quicker on the same circuit on race tyres than what you did in the Brabham on qualifying tyres, you know you've made a mistake. So when Ron Dennis came knocking at the end of that year to say I want you to be official test and reserve for Senna and Berger, I said yeah, that's the right thing for me to do because I need to regroup and I need to go learn some more. Did I learn from Senna? Yes. Did I have to be assessed by Senna? Yes. Even from the first day at Silverstone, he turned up at 11 a.m. in the morning put headphones on, listened to my feedback, went and looked at data, basically talked with the engineers, clarified that what I was talking about was correct, and then left. And it was kind of like a seal of approval, you know, uh, the great ones come in and he said that he's okay and he's off, you yeah. Back then it was important because, you know, we used to run two cars for one driver on a test, mm. and we'd be testing fuel. You know different fuels because back then it was also you know soluble stuff and yeah. you know high performance, we would have half a second a lap in a <coughs> in different fuel, testing floors you know the car would have a different floor on so what we did then immediately was going on the car for the Grand Prix that following weekend because it get turned around, shipped out and on the car, sure. so you had to have some confidence. What else I learned? I learned that I was never hard enough as a Grand Prix driver. I was never selfish enough, hmm. and to this day that's still something that in many ways I try and install in the guys I look after but not to the point that you're
2: Difficult balance Yeah,
1: not to the point that you're not a nice person with it yeah. but that you have enough inner belief and confidence that this is the right thing to do and stand your ground sure. and you know it's always a difficult balance to achieve but yeah. that's, that's something that <coughs> Senna taught me and psychology because that was probably the master of psychology. You know, when I did Imola test in an active car and matched his lap time in his passive car and we all sat and debriefed and he poured over the data and, you know, passive car should have still been quicker. There was no way the active at this point should have been quicker. And it got to the stage where uh, the the physio needed to take me back to the airport because they were staying on for an extra day and I wasn't. I was going back. And, you know, I said, okay, uh, we need to go to the airport now. And, you know, everyone was in the debrief. And Senna picks his head up and goes like, nope, he stays here. He stays with us. And I'm like, okay, that's being told to get back in your box. Wow. Yeah, that's the power I've got. So I'm about to use it. Wow. And uh, just yeah. put you back in your place. And that's the kind of, you know, the kind of influence he had. And that's yeah, what he built yeah, around him. And I think that's the difference, that's what makes the greats for me. You know, I look at the guys that, you know do, do I say that I, I could have won a Grand Prix with the right equipment? I know I could. Because right. I've driven Grand Prix winning yeah. equipment, I know what I could have done in it, and, yeah. I, and I know I can race for the best. Yeah. Do I say I could have been a world champion? I would question myself because I'm not sure I could have built the right team around me. Mm. And I only say that in that I saw some greats build those teams. Mm. And, you know, I know I look back at Schumacher, I still to this day, you know, uh, hand on heart, I would still say he was not the best mm. racing driver come Sunday afternoon. You know, if I had to put somebody on the back of the grid, go to the front, I'd put center in front of him. Because yeah. that, for me, was the the ultimate. Yeah. But I would also say that he's probably one of the most complete drivers, because he put a team of people around him mm. that delivered him seven world titles. Mm. You know, he was a massive influence, but look around at the structure that he created, yeah, yeah. That took some doing yeah yeah and that's the guys who make the difference
2: and they were kind of like-minded little crew as well weren't they they were they were all pretty tough pretty no compromises
1: yeah yeah i mean you know they and those are the those are the things that you try and instill in the young guys now is like build those relationships to a point where you're so intricate that it can't function without you you know, because that's that's the uh, the pool that you've got, and and that's what I saw when Senna was there. You know, Gerhard was a fantastic driver. He was a he was an incredibly fast driver. But there was a difference between Gerhard and Senna in the way they operated. Hmm. You know, it and and you could sense. and you could see that, and and that difference was noticeable. Come the end of a world championship-winning year. Yeah. Did did it almost feel like you were working for Senna rather than Ron Dennis? So it just sounds like what you're saying. I think to a certain point that would be true. I think that would be that would be true, and and not to say that I hadn't had a little bit of that effect when I was at Williams as a youngster, but at the same time I think the, you know, for for a, for a guy to roll up in the garage and actually listen in and give his like assessment and say, okay, yeah, well he's okay, yeah, carry on, kind of makes you feel like, okay, well, really, I don't need to talk to anybody else about my deal. I might as well go and speak to Ed and, yeah. But that—that was the power of the man. You know, he he had a huge amount of presence, and and character, and uh, he was charismatic and passionate. Mm. And you know, when he needed to say something, he didn't necessarily have to say it. Mm. Yeah, people knew.
2: It's a tremendous yardstick for for you, though, as well. I mean, yeah, if you're if you're going to (coughs) do laps. That, yeah, that he I, I mean that's that's a tremendous thing yeah, you,
1: you 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 know you never stop learning uh sure. to this day you know we we all we all learn about things but there's just certain little areas and you know, I sat with uh, sat with him on a plane on a on a trip we were doing and he pulled out an A4 book and it was full of press cuttings and all the press cuttings had highlighters on certain pages and I'm like What you're doing he said i'm reviewing all of the press and all of the points that i'm looking at are negative comments that refer to me because when i speak to the journalist i will understand what's already been written about me and then i will choose what i will say after so that's how his mind worked you'd have interviewed him you, you, oh many times yeah but
3: the, the I mean I, I was just about to say I mean I remember the the first f3 race and this is still F3 remember uh 1983 um David Leslie qualified the magnum on pole against the odds and then net disappeared and won the race by a fortnight but the illustration in motoring news that week was of and spinning during practice and he went absolutely ballistic mm. <laughs> because because you know he's got this you know he started off his f well did won the trucks and TV race, but he started his British F3 championship season with a great victory. Yeah. And Motor News happens to have got a picture of him spinning, which is the only interesting picture of him because the rest of the time it was just a car sitting on its own out, out front. Of it wasn't. You know, and he went absolutely mad
1: yeah. because perception meant so mm. much to him. Because yeah. that—that's yeah. yeah. what it's he wanted to. The outside world needed to perceive that yeah. it was this, mm. and he was very uh, you fascinating. Know, yeah, but okay. no, the, the good thing is all the photographs of my F1 podiums, were all World champions. So that's the only thing I do have in my world. <laughs> <laughs> Positivity is
2: everything, and it's uh, perception. Uh, perception. <laughs> perception. Okay, good. Um, I wasn't going to mention, but I am going to. That we did have a question from Tom Blomquist, who is managed by Mark Blundell, and Tom says, "Ask Mark Blundell what makes Tom Blomquist so special." Now I reckon that shows a, <laughs> that shows a bit of attitude, doesn't it? <laughs> You don't have to answer it. Yeah, no, I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> no
1: I'm seeing him this afternoon, actually. <laughs> yeah. Idea. So I'll tell him one to one. Okay. Hello and bye bye, Tom. <laughs> uh, just, just,
3: just one last last little detail: a true or apocryphal that you and Martin Brundle actually had to share a bed at the French Grand Prix one year?
1: That's true. That is true. We well, did uh, say
3: you were buddies. I just I yeah. Just no, that it. is true. But and um,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that is a true story because actually the. Uh, the hotel that we got booked into by the team w- was quite possibly the worst hotel room. It. It, it wasn't a hotel room. It was like a barn with a hole in the roof and a chicken in the corner. Yeah, it was that bad. It was uh, before the French Grand a Prix. A chicken, did you say? A chicken, a, chicken, in a live chicken right. in, in, the, in the corner of the room. It was like an open barn with a, just a bed in it. And um, you know, This is Formula One at its best. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, myself and Marty were like, there's no way we're staying there. You know, it's just not possible. And uh, we, we got in a car and we started to drive around to try and find somewhere else to stay and... Uh, is it Wilde Pratt? The guy who used to be at the... John Pratt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah We yeah. managed to bump into him and I think he had a room at Benetton that was spare and he loaned us this one room and it only had one double bed so the night before the Grand Prix or the qualifying myself and Marty shared a bed together but rest assured we put pillars in between us
2: <laughs> <laughs> On that note we will close this family show <laughs> Uh, anyway thank you Mark Blundell thank you very much it's highly highly entertaining hour and, hour and a quarter fantastic um, yeah come back part two when you got time brilliant Great. thank you very much everybody thank you to Simon Aaron to Ed Foster to Damien Smith of course our editor and to Alan who uh, records all this for us thank you very much for joining us we need you you need us it's all good see you next time Próximo cena, próximo por dentro, próximo caiu mais
0: na